0: All right, well, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We're going to finish up the chapter, Lord willing. If you don't have a Bible, I think most of you know the routine, you put your hand high in the air and just get the attention of Josh who's coming down and we'll be happy to let you borrow a Bible if you need. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20. Again, finishing out the chapter, I entitled our message this morning, Heaven's Guarantee. Heaven's Guarantee. From verses 13 to verse 20. Everyone's good? All right. Would you stand with me, please? We'll read these verses, or I'll read these verses aloud. You can follow along in your Bibles. The writer continues his thoughts. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he, speaking of God, could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so then after he had patiently, this is now speaking of Abraham, so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise that God had given him. The writer adds this thought, for men indeed swear by the greater, an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's you and I, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And that is by two immutable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation those of us who have fled to refuge to lay hold of the hope that set before us in this great verse verse 19 for this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become high priest forever According to the order of Mekeseldek. All right, we're going to pause there and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing that you have given us, that we can gather together here in your house to worship your holy name. Lord, to have a moment where we can get our eyes off of the world and off of ourselves and and to put our attention and our focus really where it belongs all the time and that's upon you and lord we thank you for the blessing that you've given us in the scriptures as it declares of itself that it is a lamp and a light for our feet and our path to show us where to go and how to go lord as we pray I think every Sunday, we, we agree with James that you might give us ears to hear what your spirit would say, or that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would illuminate the scriptures, open up our minds and our hearts to receive the fullness of what you want to say and do. And Lord, our prayers extend beyond our four walls here. We, we pray for the Seacrest family, that you would comfort and bless them. Father, we pray for the Marhines and the Pettits, and we thank you that they've recovered. But Lord, for those around them, we ask for continued healing and protection. And and Lord, not just for them, but for the the other families that are traveling now, the pains. And uh, Lord, for Evan and the rest of the guys who are deployed. And Father, we ask that you would be with them. And Lord, we lift up the nation of Haiti to you. So much unrest and confusion and crime and darkness. God, we ask that, that your light of the gospel, the goodness and of your grace and of Jesus Christ would just, um, Lord, would, would be a bright light in that nation. And we ask that you would be with our families and our friends that are there. Protect them, Lord. Uh, embolden them, Father. And God, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. And by faith, we just say thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things together. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment, say hello to someone. We have a couple of visitors this morning, and then you can have a seat. If you are with us last week, I had mentioned in our opening that I am a, uh, I'm a sucker for a good bargain. And I mentioned how like I'll gravitate towards things that, that have bonus items. Uh, some of you already may discover this wonderful, one of the wonderful things of Okinawa is that on the 10th and the 20th at Blue Seal Ice Cream, you basically can get three scoops for the price of one. Did you guys know that? Yeah. All right. If you didn't know that, there you go, my public service announcement. Here's the other thing too, if you didn't know that their ice cream is also lactose-free. So, yes, bonus, right? Bonus upon bonus, grace upon grace at the Blue Seal. Another another aspect that I appreciate in products is the warranty or the guarantee. Like I, I am one who appreciates a company that is willing to stand behind their product offer a solid warranty or guarantee, you know, satisfaction guaranteed. Uh, I appreciate that. I mean, there's even some cereal brands that have satisfaction guarantee. The, uh, one of the taglines is, love it or it's free. And I, and I gravitate, well, I gravitate towards cereal anyways, but I gravitate towards those cereals, you know. But if you buy it and you don't like it, they're like, "Listen, you just return the whole the box and you get a full refund." I think that's great to be able to stand behind their product. Plus, the bonus is often it's cereal that has the little gift for purchase. Remember, do they still do that? Remember, as a kid, I'd bury my dirty hand like looking for treasure, right, and destroy half the box of Captain Crunch. You know, <laughs> do they still do that? I don't. I don't even know if they do that anymore. Uh, but anyway, that, what a win-win, right? You can get a toy and eat half the box and just return it for a full refund and, you know. As we come to this portion here in chapter 6, the author gives us the most glorious guarantee in all of the universe. It is, if you will, God's guarantee to you as his child. That when you and I come to faith, that we are secured in that faith. There is a guarantee of that faith. There's a a warranty of heaven, if you will, that has no expiration date. And, And I want to submit to you that it's the intent of the author for his reader, and of course including us, to understand the enormity, the significance of having such a guarantee directly from God and then how that should impact our life on this side of eternity. Oh, certainly has an impact on the day that we pass from this life and we enter into heaven, but it also should mean something on this side of heaven, of how it impacts then the way that we worship and the way that we think of things, the way that we respond to challenges and difficulties, but also the way that we would respond to blessings and celebrations, that it it should impact us on this side of eternity. Now gang, I I think that most of you know as we make our way through the scriptures, it is my sincere prayerful aim and goal to to make our our teaching applicational. That we want to read together and um, interpret together and rightly divide the word of truth together and then find the application together? What what are the handles that we can put on these things that God is declaring to us that, you know, that can be fleshed out in our lives? And so with God's help, we want to pull out these timeless, tru- timeless truths of Scripture. We can observe together, agree together, and to seek to apply together. As we've often said, right, it's not just to to know what is right and true, but it's also for us to do what is right and true, to, to walk in that truth. And so sometimes, however, we come to portions of Scripture where the application, if you will, is just simply know this. Be assured of this truth. Hold on to these things. And I, and I would submit to you that that is the case with these verses. They are declaratives. There's not a lot of imperatives here, if any. They're they're all declarative. It's, It's all what God has done, what God has provided by His grace to you and to me who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, it does mean something, and it should affect us in good ways, but the main thrust is this, that you as a child of God, with the salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ, there are better things that come with that salvation. Glorious things that come with it. And one of the most incredible things that comes with our salvation is the guarantee that you are locked in. That you are sealed. That you belong to the Lord and nothing can take you away from the love of the Lord. And we want to remember the context. These are Jewish Christians or Christians Hebrew Christians, if you will, hence the title of the book, who came to faith in Christ. They came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And they had left then their religious, if I can say it this way, legalism of Judaism. And they were beginning to follow the Lord and live for the Lord. However, they were being tempted to go back to their old ways. And the reason they were being tempted to go back to their old ways was because as believers, as followers of Christ, they were experiencing this increasing persecution, this increase of pressure from their family, their friends, of the culture and society around them. I mean, they were, if you will, experiencing first century cancel culture. And to take a stand for Jesus Christ was to be automatically ostracized and denounced. They quickly discovered that believing in Christ and following Him was not a bed of roses. It was not an easy path. That it was difficult and it was hard. It was very straining on relationships. And the voices that called them then to quit that and, and just leave Christ and to come back to the old life that was very strong. And sometimes those voices, friends and family, sometimes it's the pressure of society and culture around us. And we understand. As followers of Christ, just by saying, I believe in the Lord and want to live for the Lord, we, we are going against the grain and the flow of culture today. We don't flow in the same direction as the current of the world. And more and more, like these Hebrew believers in the first century, to take a stand for Christ in our time is then to be, uh, to be a standout as a target for, in our culture. And there are voices family members, and your friends, sometimes it's our own voice that tempts us to go back, to think, ah, this isn't worth it. This is so difficult. Why am I creating all this heartache for myself? We begin to evaluate our our difficulties and doubts and despair, and we think, ah, this is too difficult. And the truth is we we can become tired of the constant bombardment of criticism and and name-calling and and shaming of culture and the cancel culture and all of that. And so, gang, listen, if you are in that place or you're experiencing those type of things, uh, the letter of Hebrews is for you. It is God's encouragement to you encouragement to not let go of Christ because He will not let go of you, an encouragement to to not drift away, an encouragement to not grow dull in our hearing, an encouragement to not just dabble in the things of the Lord, but to understand the, the degree of strength, of contentment, of completeness and fullness uh, to include insurance that you've been given by God. And the writer wants to remind them, listen, nothing else will satisfy you. Nothing else will give you contentment like Christ will. Nothing else will sustain you. Nothing else will supply what you need. Nothing else will save you. It's only Christ and God guarantees it. And so here the author encourages us not to become sluggish, not to become slothful there in verse 13, but rather to follow the examples of others who who also had difficulty, who also had challenges, and yet they trusted God by faith as well, or excuse me, in verse 12 I mentioned earlier. And now here in verse 13, he provides the example of Abraham. And so from 12, he says, don't become sluggish, but but imitate, follow the examples and the lead of others, just like you. People who were imperfect and weak at times, and yet they held on to the promise of the Lord, and they experienced the blessings. For when God then made a promise to Abraham, because God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, as the writer continues his thought, I want to note with you that the emphasis of this example of Abraham who patiently waited is really upon God who faithfully promised. That, that's the emphasis. If the totality of where our assurance and our hope, the entirety of our salvation could be summarized, it could be summarized in this statement God made a promise. And if you're one who's inclined to highlight or mark in your Bibles, or if you figured out how to do it in your tablet, I encourage you to highlight that statement. God made a promise. Because really, salvation coming to the world through Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God making a promise. A promise that God made from the very beginning that extends and brings us back even to the beginning of creation. It brings us to to Genesis in the garden itself. A preview of what was to come. A sacrifice that God would make to cover their sins. A declaration of how there is going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And yet how One who came from the seed of the woman would bruise or crush the head of Satan. And all throughout the Old Testament, promises and prophecies of how God was going to send a Messiah, a Savior. And and not just for the, the, the Jewish nation, but for the whole world. And one who would come to rescue people from their sins. One who would come as light into darkness to free the oppressed, to bring sight to the blind. See, God made a promise, and He made good on every single promise from the beginning of creation. And, and, and so when God makes a promise, it's not like when we make promises. You think about... People making promises and the, the trustworthiness of the promise of people. Now, arguably, we might make a promise and do our best to keep our promise, but how many of us can say we have kept every single promise we've ever made? I, I don't know that there'd be many. I, mean, I remember even as a little kid promising God, like, oh, I'll be a good boy. Just help me find the key, my house key that I lost, you know or my ID card that I misplaced. You make these bargains with God, I'll be good for, well, maybe not a whole year, a whole week, Lord, you know. You know, it's because we're broken people that we have broken promises. And sometimes there are reasons beyond our control. Sometimes we will just, it's just because we simply fail to keep our word. And broken promises can be hurtful at times and discouraging. We place our our hope in a somebody or we place our hope in a a situation or an institution. And when they don't deliver, they don't make good on that promise, their commitment, what happens? We, We can be very disappointed. We can be bummed out and angry and bitter. And sometimes we we can transfer that experience of worry or doubt or or being disappointed, and we transfer that to the Lord. You know, promise is only as good as the person making it. And so when we come then to a discussion about the promises of God and God making a promise, we need to understand that when God makes a promise, it is unlike any other kind of promise we've ever experienced. Because we can trust the promises of God because we can trust God who is completely faithful. Several years ago, this is many years ago now, we had a team that was coming from the states to do some outreach and a pastor from Montebello, California, Pastor Pancho, and he so he was like, hey, Rick, can you get us a hotel room for us and the team that's coming and and this is many years ago, so at that time, our family was living in Yomitan, so we called the hotel out there, and I, uh, I said, hey, I, wanna, I need to book these rooms for these particular dates. The guy's like, yeah, no problem, and I said, great, hung up, and that was it, and ended up talking with Pastor Pancho, and he says, thanks. He's like, what's the confirmation number? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I didn't get one. I just called the guy, and He's like, oh, can you call back and get the confirmation number? So I end up calling back, and I asked the, the person on the phone, I said, hey, I just talked to you, and uh, I was wondering if I can get the confirmation number, and the guy then responds to me and says, what, what's the confirmation number? I'm like, uh, I, I don't know. I guess it's like a number that tells me there's a reservation. You know, like I was trying to figure out, what is a confirmation number? It's just a, it's an arbitrary number in letters, right, that just is attached to the reservation you made. And so I was trying to do my best to explain. And, and basically he says, well, I've given you my name and I gave you my word. That should be enough. And I was like, yes, sir. You know, <laughs> And it should be, right? I mean, how, how sad that it's a rarity these days to, to find someone who just says, well, you have my name and you have my word. That should be enough. Right? Because we live in a world that's constantly breaking promises. We live in a world that is full of unfulfilled commitments and perpetual lies. We just turn on the news. Our politicians, the media, so-called scientists, I, I don't even know who to believe anymore sometimes. Conflicting reports, news outlets and government institutions and organizations. People, you would think that you should be able to trust, and yet they say one thing, and then a couple months or weeks later, they say something else, and it's so depressing at times. It can be very discouraging. I mean, where do we go then for truth? Where do we go to find our bearing? I I, I don't know. I don't know where the world goes. I don't know where a person who doesn't have Jesus goes because I know where I go. I know where we go. Right, we, we go to God, and we go to God's Word. God's Word and God's promises are true. God's Word is truth. God's Word is a light. God's Word is a refuge. God's Word gives us bearing and gain of all of the things that that can fail us in this side of eternity, understand that God will never fail you. God's Word will never fail you. You can trust the promises of God. It is assured. It is secured. And the sole fact that it is God Himself who gave it. God could not call upon anybody higher than Himself as proof of or as a person to hold him accountable. And so the writer says, because he couldn't, he called on himself. Right again, we understand that in the natural. Right? We, we often enlist things that we hold dear or very valuable that are important to us as a type of guarantee or a type of, of assurance to somebody that you would say, look, I, I, I promise you I'm telling you the truth. I'm serious about what I'm saying. And so we, have to, we, we often solicit some other higher entity or something that's greater than ourselves. A conversation that will happen often in my house is, hey, did you eat my ice cream? No, I didn't eat your ice cream. Do you swear that you didn't eat my ice cream? Remember as kids, the pinnacle of our promise the epitome of our of our uh, uh declaration of truth, it was usually I, I pinky promise you. Like, because that means you're serious, right? There's been a part of me when I've done weddings, I've always wanted to be like, you know, do you uh promise to keep her and hold her and sickness and health? I do. Do you pinky promise to do that? You know? <laughs> and sometimes we enlist these these fatalistic expressions, right, to express our sincerity. Cross my heart and hope to die. You know, stick a needle in my eye. That's how serious I am. Where in Japanese, the, uh, they have a thing, also pinky promise, and it goes on to say, you know, I pinky promise you, and if you break my promise, then you're going to swallow a thousand needles. Yeah, that's the seriousness of the pack we just made, right? And God says, here's how I'm going to show you I'm serious about the promise I've given you. I swear to me. (laughs) I don't swear to God. I swear to me. See, God keeps His word and God keeps His promises and He puts His own name on the line. He puts His own character on the line. And some of us have allowed the unfaithfulness of others. We've experienced heartache because we've experienced broken promises and hurt. We've been, again, disappointed, frustrated. And because we've had that experience, it it can sometimes distort then when we look at the promises of the Lord, it distorts then our understanding of God's character and, and His faithfulness to you. We've been beaten down by worry and fear and disappointment after disappointment and being lied to and being tricked and taken advantage of. Yet that, that is the world. And it can be very draining. Can you understand that the strength that you and I need for this life and to flourish in this life, to experience life abundant as Christ said He wants to bring us, it's not like the message of the world. The message of the world is, you know, it's a very me-centric, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a me type of culture. And often what you'll find is, well, look into yourself and you'll find the strength that you have, some great reason that you can face tomorrow. I, I would submit to you that if there's any strength that's in you, it's only because God put it there. But the reality is we, we don't look to ourselves, we're to look away from ourselves, And find strength in Jesus Christ. Our worth, your worth and your value and your strength. The grace that you need, all of it to continue. It's not in yourself, it's in the Lord. And to place faith in the one who is more than able, the Bible says, to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could ever ask or think. I would submit to you, it's we get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on the Lord. God who made a promise. Abraham was the recipient of that promise. And and Abraham, if you will, has a part, if you and we'll talk about that. But but really the emphasis is because God made a promise, and because God is good and the character of God is trustworthy. He could swear no one greater, he just swears on himself. I, I swear to me, I'm going to keep my promise to you. And so the writer quotes from Genesis 22 and verse 14, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. You know, the promise that God gave to Abraham was not a small one. It was miraculous. Miraculous. It was unattainable by human standards. And really what he's quoting from in Genesis 22 verses 16 and 17 is is a culmination of a promise that was really given much earlier in Genesis chapter 12, in fact. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to go back and read this week from Genesis 12 and on. The life of Abraham and what God did in Abraham's life. And so he, by the time he gets to 22, he's affirming or really reaffirming this promise that he had made to Abraham. Even before Abraham was Abraham when he was just called Abram. I'm going to take you out of your country. I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And those who will bless you will be blessed. And those who curse you will be cursed. And when I bless you, you're going to be blessed. And when I say I'm going to multiply you, You are going to be multiplied. And Abraham, in fact, then we have the record how God blesses him and he becomes the father of not just one or two, but of a great nation. And the promise then he'd be a blessing to all of the nations. Again, this is a promise that that exceeded human limitations and expectation. And it was a promise that God made that, in one sense, it came in installments. It was a a huge promise that had different parts to it that Abraham got to experience. The promise began with him saying, come out of the land of Ur. I'm going to bring you to a land I'll show you. Many of you in the military can relate to that. You're going somewhere. You don't know yet, but you're going somewhere. And the promise then of God was to Abram and Sarai before he had changed their name that God would lead him to this new land and that Abraham was going to have a family so big, it was going to be more than the stars in the sky or the, the dust of the dirt or the sand on the seashore. How much is that? That's a lot. You ever try to count the sand at the beach? <laughs> It's an incalculable number. And yet, that was the promise that God made to Abraham. And and when he made it, understand, it was ridiculous, if you will. It was was grandiose. Anybody know how old Abram was when God made that promise for a thousand points? Uh, 90 is a number. He wasn't 90 at that time. Close, though. He's 75 years old. Sarai was 65 years old. And the Bible says that she was barren. The, the, the implication was that they, they, had, they tried to have kids, but they couldn't. By medical standards, they couldn't have kids. And so this promise is given to Abraham when he's 75 years old. 24 years later, he's 99. God shows up and tells him a 99-year-old Abram, okay, buddy, next year, this is it. Go register at uh, Tarje and uh, you know, get your baby stuff ready. You and Sarai are going to have a baby. Genesis 17. And God then changes His name at that point from Abram to Abraham, and Sarai to Sarah, to signify this new season. And sure enough, one year later, 25 years after God gave Abraham. That promise, he's 100, Sarai's 90, Sarah's 90, they have a baby. At 100 and at 90, they have a baby. At that age, right, you're not looking to get busy. You're looking for senior citizen coupons, right, discounts at the coffee shop and restaurants. You're looking forward to your retirement check. Not changing diapers, (laughs) And yet God made a promise, and God kept that promise. Surely, blessing I will bless you. Multiplying I will multiply you. And what was Abraham's role? Verse 15, and so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. He patiently endured. I I highlighted that phrase in my Bible. He had to wait a long time. And it wasn't a simple wait. He had to endure the wait. It was a difficult wait. It was a challenging time. It was a time filled of doubts, and was God really going to do this? Again, you're familiar with the story. There's even a time where they're like, well, maybe this is the way that God wants to do this. It can be challenging. Heard that term, delayed gratification. I-, I wonder if it's a problem for us. I mean, delayed gratification is, is is a true virtue in itself, isn't it? You see those experiments where they take kids and they put them in a room and they they put like a big marshmallow or a cookie in front of them. They're like, if you can wait five minutes, you'll get a second one. You ever see those? And some of the kids hold out. Right? It's so fun to watch some of the kids that can't. Like they're all tempted, you know, and I feel like that would be me. <laughs> I, mean, I want to submit to you that I, I, I think not only do we live in a world that's full of lies and broken promises, but we, we live in a world that's, that's horribly impatient. We, we've come to esteem speed, quickness of service, express we, we, that, that becomes a virtue for us. How long is the wait time? Right, we, we will assess the worth of something based upon how long we have to wait for it. How much money have we spent? And I'll confess, for me, sometimes waiting is like torture. Like Just the waiting process is torturous. And there's times where I've come like, oh, I'm just dying. Like, But I'm not really dying. Like you're just... I'm just being selfish, right? I mean, why is, why is waiting so painful? Why do I hate waiting? Well, I feel like, oh, it's a waste of my valuable time. I could be searching for treasures and boxes of cereal right now. What am I doing? You know? I, I, I understand, I feel like we live in a microwave culture, fast and furious. We want it now. I like buying instant ramen. Or even now they have those cool little microwave rice packs. You ever see that? Just kind of rip the corner. Two minutes in a microwave, you're done. You don't got to wait 45 minutes to an hour in the rice cooker anymore. It's ingenious. I love it. But we value those things. Instant results and instant gratification. How many many of us have found that God, God often doesn't work that way, though? Tends to be a little old school in his processes. Oh, he's faithful; he will keep his promises to you. But often it involves us waiting for them to come to fruition. Abraham had to wait twenty-five years for God's promise. Well, twenty-four years, really, even for, for it to for it to have its initial beginning. In fact, I would even argue that Abraham didn't even really get to see the rest, the final installment of the promise of God. Because it began with Isaac. And Isaac then having his kids. But Abraham passed away before he really saw the rest of God's promise realized. But here, here's a truth for us. Maybe here's an application. There are times, I would say often times, where God will have you wait. And in the waiting process is a time to trust the Lord. In the waiting process is a time for us to, to be tested if we're going to just continue to follow after the Lord or not. Are we going to go our own way? So hopefully you'd agree with me that, that in those times that God has you to wait, the promise is it will always be worth it whatever the Lord's wanting to do. Because it's not stated here, but one of the things we can learn from Abraham's life is that we can learn from his mistake because him and Sarah did at one point say, you know what, I think this is how God wants to fulfill this promise. And, and they ran ahead of the Lord. Remember, Sarah says one day to Abraham, hey, I think, I think it'll be good. Why don't you take my maidservant, Hagar, and, and, and go have a baby with her. She could be a surrogate for us. But that's not what God had promised them. And yet, they thought, okay, well, yeah, this is, maybe this is the way the Lord wants to fulfill this. And so they, I, I would submit to you, they ran ahead of the Lord. They tried to accomplish the, the things of God in their own way. And what happened? Well, they made a huge mess. They got in all kinds of trouble. Became a a product of the flesh, if you will, and created heartache. It becomes this this living parable for you and for me that that we will create a lot of heartache and a lot of mess for ourselves when we try to fulfill God's promises in our own way versus just waiting on God to do what God wants to do. And so it's a good word choice here when when the writer says that he patiently endured. Endured endured. Sometimes we have to endure. We have to endure through the waiting time. We need endurance. It's the theme the writer's going to come back to. Let's run with perseverance. Let's run with endurance. And, and we need endurance when it's hard. We don't really need endurance when it's easy. Well, I need endurance to sleep last night. No, not really. I needed endurance yesterday to go to Blue Seal. No, not really. (laughs) To go hiking, to go run a race, to do something that, you know, exhorts something out of you, to ride a bike and have a flat tire. You need endurance. And so, an encouragement to us. Abraham patiently endured And the application becomes then, don't quit and don't deviate from the path that God puts you on. Don't run ahead of the Lord. Don't pursue unhealthy, ungodly relationships because you feel like your time is running out. Don't charge up your credit card. Don't file for divorce because it's bumpy waters right now. God's not done. God's still at work. God made a promise. And yes, it, it might be rough that you have to patiently endure right now, but the Lord is faithful. And Abraham held on to the promise of the Lord because of who God is. His word is sure. And I would submit to you to enable then Abraham to be faithful. It enabled Abraham then to patiently endure, and then he obtained the promise. He received the blessing. Now, the writer continues in verse 16 and 17, and he says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them to end all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly then to you and to me, to the heirs of promise, to show that he, he keeps his word, that, that the immutability of his counsel, God then also made an oath. Which kind of surprising. It's an interesting thought. And so he goes back to a common ground. He says, listen, everyone understands men, like people, they as we mentioned earlier, they have to solicit something greater than themselves to demonstrate sincerity or fidelity or or honesty. And that still happens in culture today. In the United States court, you, you go to court and they, they say, okay, put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And, and even politicians, although they break their promises, you know, sometimes in a, an inauguration, they, right, they put their hand on a Bible and they take an oath to defend the Constitution or take an oath to, to do something. And it's by something greater than ourselves that we bind our oath to. And so it shows us how serious we are then about the statement that we're making. So God, who then in making a promise, didn't need to say, I pinky promise you. The word of God is trustworthy in itself because of who God is, His character and His nature. But determining to show us To to eliminate any possible doubt. To have a, a guarantee, a warranty of heaven. The writer says God made an oath. God made an oath on top of the promise that He already made. How serious then God is about the security of your salvation. How serious God is then about His love for you. And how He thinks of you. To whom did God want to show this? Determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. That's you. That's me. You are God's heir. You are the heir of God's inheritance. An inheritance that He has waiting for you on the other side of eternity. But like the promise to Abraham, there are deposits that you and I get to experience on this side of heaven. The blessing of knowing the Lord. The blessing of all the the better things that accompany our salvation. The relationships that God places us in. And so just like Abraham, as we've been brought into the family of God, by patient endurance, we can trust the Lord for the blessings He has. And then he says in verse 18, by two immutable things, that word immutable means unchangeable. You can't alter it. In which it's impossible for God to lie. What are the two immutable things? It seems by context that the two immutable things first is, well, the fact that God made a promise. That's not going to change. And then on top of that, that God made an oath on top of the promise. Those two things. And he asserts that God cannot lie. And the world lies. We lie. Sometimes we lie about lying. We live in a time of deception. I mean, even when we make promise, remember as kids, you'd make a promise and you broke your promise and someone called call you out and you'd be like, well, I had my fingers crossed. Right? It nullified it. <laughs> it's like the, just kind of an understood rule, right? Just like this meant I'm more serious and this means, well, I really wasn't serious. Listen, God doesn't cross his fingers. He will do what he says he's going to do. And, and, and unlike us, the Lord is always faithful. God is always true. God does not lie. And then from here, the author gives three illustrations of what it then means for us. As I mentioned to you, like this section is declarative. It's just the truths of who the Lord is, what God has done, the nature of God, the character of God. What does it mean for us then, that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy? that God promises and keeps His promises? Well, the first illustration that he uses, he says we can have strong consolation. Because of who God is, we can be, we can be strongly encouraged. We can be strongly comforted. We can be strongly um, assured. Here's an illustration he uses. For those of us who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So the first image of what it means for us is, well, it's a place of refuge. We've been promised a place of sanctuary. Because of who God is, because of the faithfulness of the Lord in your life, because of the trustworthiness of His Word, you can be greatly comforted by the fact that you have a guarantee of sanctuary. It's not to say that bad things won't happen to you. It's not to say that that being a Christian means, as the Hebrew believers discovered, that everything's going to just be uh, easy peasy. No, there are disappointments. There are difficulties. But the assurance is to know that nothing happens in your life unless God permitted it. Nothing happens in your life unless God allowed it. And His promise to you is, he'll, one, He'll be with you through it all. And secondly, that He promises to use it ultimately for your good and His glory. That all things will work to the glory of God and for your good. That, that term, fled for refuge, it, it, it finds its source in a reference to the Old Testament. These cities of refuge or sanctuary cities that God provided for the nation of Israel. That when God's people got into trouble, they made a, a mistake. That they could go there for a place of protection. It's really a picture of the gospel. In Christ, we are sheltered from the judgment of the law. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Paul tells the Romans. And so we, in the Lord, because of who God is, you have a place of sanctuary. Guaranteed. Number two, the the next image is that we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It enters the presence behind the veil. That's an interesting combination of phrases. God bless you. But the first is that we've been given an anchor of hope. That means we we have a place of stability. And, And notice the way it's described. It's an anchor of the soul. It's an anchor of your life that is sure and steadfast. It's constant and it's concrete. You know, the writer is using these nautical terms to describe the stability we have in the Lord, the promise of God to keep us stable. It's a great analogy because the world is like a stormy ocean, a stormy sea. The winds blow, every wind of doctrine and and ideology. We talked about how there there is a current of the world that blows hard against us. And the writer would tell us earlier, be careful that we don't unhitch ourselves from the Lord and drift away. It's fast and it's furious and it wants to pull us into sinfulness and anti-Christian and unbiblical worldviews. And what keeps us stable in this crazy world? Well, being anchored to the Lord. To know that your soul is anchored to God. right? It, what keeps us in the place of the face of the storms? What's well, Jesus Christ? Again, the imagery is it's a neat one. It's slightly incomplete because you think of a boat that drops an anchor to keep it safe. It, in one sense, it's good because the boat can still kind of bob and stay afloat of the ever-changing conditions of the sea. But we're not anchored down, we're anchored up. (laughs) We're anchored, if you will, to heaven. And and likewise, as the direction of the world changes, we experience the bobbing and, and the craziness of the world around us, it allows us to stay afloat so that we don't get pulled down. That we can stay above it all, we're not dr- drawn into it, drown in it. Beginning, I hope that you know we're tethered to eternal truths. That you and I have the hope of heaven. I-, I thought about Paul in the Book of Acts. He's on the on this boat, and this huge typhoon comes, and the boat eventually is going to be destroyed. And even Dr. Luke, who's writing the narrative, in Acts chapter 27, verse 20, says, and all hope was given up. He thought, this is it. They run out of food. Several days. And Paul then stands up and he says, take heart, everybody. God told me I'm going to stand before Caesar. So, we're not going to, die. This isn't the end. See, the promise of God enabled Paul to have this great assurance, even despite the horrible storm, even despite the despair of the circumstances, he has an assurance to know this isn't the end. We're going to keep moving forward. And you know the account, he even gets to the island, he gets bitten by a snake, and he shakes it off. He's like, this isn't the end either. And so it's the promises of God in our life that help us to stay concrete and constant, because we will experience storms in our life. And then lastly, he gives us imagery where he says that it enters the presence behind the veil, the forerunner has entered for us even Christ being coming, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The writer uses this last illustration. And this last illustration is he brings us back to the topic of Jesus as our heavenly high priest. And so the whole imagery, to, the, to enter the presence behind the veil, it speaks of the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies there in the temple or the tabernacle, One time a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, the high priest enters and he he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He makes atonement for the entire nation to set them right before the Lord. And here we're told Jesus has entered for us. He, as our, our eternal high priest, makes atonement for us. And that word forerunner, it's actually a military term. In the original Greek, it's the word uh, prodromos. It means recon. It means scout. The prodromos went ahead so others could follow. And here's why Jesus then is the better high priest. The Old Testament high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and others could not follow. If you followed it meant your death. The high priest, the Old Testament high priest goes in to represent us only. But Jesus is the better high priest because he goes in. Not only does he represent us, but he opens the curtain and he brings us into the same space. He ushers us in. He invites us in. And so let, I'll just close with this. Because of who God is and all that the Lord has promised us, we have a place of assurance. Assurance of forgiveness at the mercy seat. God forever removed our guilt and shame. And sometimes what holds us back from moving forward in faith, what holds us back from trusting the Lord fully, is that we hold on to a bag of guilt and shame of our past mistakes that God says, drop it, leave it. You're forgiven of that. The blood of Christ has washed you clean and you can move forward. See, God promises that in Christ all of your sins are forgiven. You're free. You're released. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace. For these very vivid pictures of who you are and what you've done the guarantee that you give us from heaven, Lord. That ultimately you are the the supreme promise maker and keeper. Lord, in a world that's full of broken promises and lies, we thank you that we can go to you ever faithful, ever truthful. And Lord, it should mean something then for us on this side of heaven. It means that we have then Uh, this great assurance, a great assurance of our forgiveness, a great assurance of our stability, a great assurance of our sanctuary. Lord, I pray we'd hold on to those things. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. I pray you have a great rest of the day. And uh, as always, I look forward to seeing you in the week to come. You are free to go.